we're slowly plodding on uh, through chapter one, through this first section, this doxology of the Apostle Paul uh, relating to the vast innumerable blessings that the Lord has given us, all blessings in the heavenly places. And we have considered, haven't we, what is a Christian uh, in the first sermon when we spoke about the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. We have considered how the Christian, last week, how the Christian is to bless the Lord because the Lord has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And today, we will consider what makes us a Christian and to what goal are we made Christians. It is sad, but it's the reality. It's the saddest feeling in the world. When we wake up in the morning, perhaps some of you know this uh, firsthand uh, of your lives, this uh, recent past. It is the saddest thing when we wake up in the morning and we feel like, uh, what's the point? What's the point of life? When you feel like life is going absolutely nowhere. We are alive, but what is the point of living? What is the point? We find no point in being alive. And the point, the thing here that we're being told in Ephesians is that there is a point. There is a meaning to life in Christ. We need meaning in our lives. And here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to verse 6, we are told what the meaning of life is. We're not made to live uh, as those without, uh, in, that live in meaninglessness. We're made to be sustained in a meaningful and purposeful life. And the, the assurance that we have of that is the words of the Apostle Paul, the inspired words of the Apostle Paul in this passage that says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Our text this morning is a powerful corrective to this uh, meaninglessness in life, this narrow-minded view, uh, narrow-minded view of life that causes us to be depressed uh, and fosters this kind of thoughts Paul sets out detailing not only the glorious destiny to which we are called, but he lays the foundation of that destiny firmly and securely. He roots that foundation in eternity past. So our life, in that sense, is not meaningless. Whatever you're going through in life in this, uh, 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 at this time, if you're Christ, your life is not Without purpose, it's not purposeless, it's purposeful. The purpose is clear. God has saved us for the praise of the glory of his grace. What the Apostle Paul is doing is marvelous. It's kind of like building a, 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 a skyscraper. I was watching a documentary recently about how they built the, the tallest building in the world in, uh, is it Dubai, the, the Burj Khalifa. And because of the, 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 the very uh, unsecure foundation, they had to dig deeper than, than before. They had to lay those foundations down as deep as possible. 
And the point here that I'm trying to make is that as Paul is trying to build this high skyscraper, this infinitely high skyscraper of the every spiritual blessing that, that God the Father has blessed us in Christ, with in Christ, as he seeks to build, as we'll see in the, in the next 14 verses, this high uh, edifice, this high building, he first begins by digging deep down the foundations of that blessing. The foundations of that blessing are, as Paul says here in verse 4, where we'll start with our text, is that just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, our blessings are eternal. They, they, they go beyond the, the, the end of this time into the new heavens and the new earth. Just as they go infinitely forward, they go infinitely backward. Just as they go infinitely high, they go infinitely uh, low in their foundation. Paul begins by saying, just as, which connects it to the blessings that we were speaking of last week, that all spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as, that's the connection, the reason why he is blessing God the Father in verse 3 is because God the Father is the one who did, did these things that he's about to expound in the next um, 10 verses. He begins by saying he chose us. A simple, independent, unaffected, sovereign choice. He tells us that God chose us. This is uh, the doctrine of election. The doctrine of predestination. That uh, although it is difficult to us to wrap our heads around it fully, and although it's difficult for us to comprehend it uh, completely, it is plain. It is a clear statement. It is by sovereign will of God that God in his sovereign decree chose a people for himself. He chose those who were to be members of this holy building, of this, uh, of this holy edifice that is called the church. Those who are to be the, the members of the body of Christ. Apart from the will of man. Totally apart from any human consideration and purely on the basis of his own will. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Because, and he, he emphasizes this by saying it was his will. Look at verse uh, 5 at the end. He says, according to the good pleasure of his will. But it's not just there. If you turn to verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. It is all a work of his own will. You get the message, right? God freely, independently, unaffected by any human consideration or by any foreknowledge of uh, faith that might have been or, or might have not have been, but apart from any human work or any human choice, God chose those that were to be included in his body, in the body of his son in this case. It's all of God. Because if we had anything to do with it, if we had any uh, input into this decision, verse 3 wouldn't be blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 would be blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and ourselves because we made such a smart decision. But that's not what Paul says. God is to be blessed. God the Father is to be blessed because he was the one that did it all. 
purely, simply, independent, unaffected uh, by any human work, a sovereign choice. In John chapter 6, verse 44, our Lord Jesus says, No man can come to the Father except through me. No man can come unto, to the Father except through me, uh, uh, and except the Father draw him. No, one's, no one is saved unless the Father draws him to the Son. The, the, the word there is uh, a word that conveys a sense of magnetism. It's God drawing like a magnet draws um, another uh, piece of metal to, to itself. God draws us. It's his choice. It is his action. Why? How is anyone a Christian? How is anyone to be a Christian? The answer is because they believe in the gospel. But why do some believe in, and some don't? The answer is because God the Father chose them. Because of God's sovereign choice. Now I'm not saying that there is no human responsibility. Again, the, the, the election is a mystery. Election is, is a mystery that uh, no human being is, is able to fully comprehend. There is human responsibility. But there is, without a shadow of doubt, divine sovereignty in the salvation of man. It is God who is running things. It is God who is the source of our salvation. He is the beginning and the end. I don't know how this uh, fully harmonizes with our uh, uh, human choice and with our, with, our, uh, with our human responsibility. But I know this, I can go out into these streets and preach the gospel to any man and offer him the salvation uh, to any person knowing I can, that I can say this because God is the one who is at work. In fact, that is the only foundation for our evangelism. If it is down to human, uh, uh, to human uh, desire, and if it is down to, to us being persuasive enough, no man will ever be saved. And in fact, all of us, all of us, we believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. Whether we are, as they say, Calvinists or Armenians, we all believe in it. Because at the end of the day, even the staunchest of Armenians, he will get down on his knees and pray that the Lord would open up the heart of the person he just prayed the, uh, preached the gospel to. On our knees, we're all, we all believe in the sovereignty of God. We all believe that it's God's prerogative and God's uh, sovereignty that saves a person. Paul goes on to say, he chose us in him. In him, some suggest here when it, when the when when the apostle says that he, we were chosen in him, that this means that it, it is a choice that is based on the faith that we have in him. That God looked, peered down through the corridors of time, and foresaw that we would have faith, so He chose us. But that's that. First of all, that's a suggestion that is not even present in the text. You have to import that idea to the text. It is not there. But in other places, Paul, uh, God, teaches precisely the opposite. That even 
the fact that we are in Christ is something to which one is elected. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 26. For you uh, see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. Notice that. But of him, of God the Father, we are in Christ Jesus. It is all a work of his doing. It's, no man should boast. That's, in fact, where Paul is leading this, 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 whole, um, this whole section. He says, Who became for us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Or as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that no man should boast. It is a salvation by grace that no man should boast. We were elected in him. Not for something that he saw, but because of his good pleasure, the good pleasure of his will. He chose us. Not in anything that we would have done or will, will do. We are in him, chosen in a free, sovereign, simple decision made by God the Father in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. As in Romans 11 uh, says that, uh, before the children were even born, speaking of Jacob and Esau, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So we are chosen in him before the foundation of, of the world. In him means that God's choice always had a view of uniting us this uh, the union with Christ that we've spoken of uh, already, he always had this purpose of uniting us to his son for our salvation. Paul, in another place, he writes that who has saved us and called us with, his, with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So you see, this is not just the one time that, that the scripture uh, speaks of this. In fact, even in the Old Testament, how was the people of, of Israel chosen? It says that God chose them to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of, on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on or, or nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. So why, why did God choose Israel? Not because of anything that they had. They were, they were the most uh, uh, small, uh, unimpressive people in the land or in that region. God chose them because he loved them. And when you bring the New Testament into it, because he loved them with a love that is everlasting. 
That's what we see here. It's before the foundation of the world. From eternity past, God the Father had a role in leading and directing the Son and the Spirit in this work of salvation. Now, the, 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 the three persons of the Trinity are co-equal, co-eternal. They, the, they, uh, they are not too uh, different in, in deity or attributes, but in the work of salvation, what the theologians call the economy of the uh, salvation, it was God's, God the Father's initiative in redeeming the believer from sin and death that sent uh, or that chose and then sent his son and his son obediently came to save this people in Christ. But it is all in love. And because it is all in love and because it is all a work of God's sovereign will, none of us can take any credit for our salvation. Why is it that you are a Christian? Well, the Lord knows. Because he chose me. Not because I deserved. Not because I earned it. Not because I, I was more intelligent than the person sitting next to me the time that I went and heard the gospel. No, but because God. Because of God's love. Far from being the source of pride and of boasting on our own selves. The doctrine of election lays bare and, and, and humiliates us because it tells us that we actually have no, we have no say or not, we have no glory to take for us ourselves in our salvation. But it also tells us, doesn't it, that God's salvation was not some kind of last-minute uh, arrangement. That God was caught off guard by sin in the garden. That God was, was biting his nails, hoping that Adam and Eve would not fall from grace. And then they fell, and God had to set about in, 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 in elaborating this plan like a plan B, a wealth my first idea failed and now I need to, to go about and, and do it this way. Our salvation is not some kind of plan B. Not some kind of uh, 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 moment where God was caught by surprise. God planned our salvation from the, before the foundation of the earth. It is all his plan from the beginning. He chose us in Christ for salvation. As I already read from 2 Timothy 1.9, he chose us before time began. He chose us from the beginning, Paul says to the Thessalonians, for salvation. And this plan was never frustrated. From, from Genesis 3, when mankind fell from the Garden of Eden to this day, the plan that he set out in motion before the foundation of the world is still very much ongoing. And it has never been frustrated. It has never been canceled. Our dispensationalist brethren, some of the more uh, extreme dispensationalist brethren, believe that in some way the church is a sort of a plan B. 
Uh, had the, the, the Israelites uh, not rejected the Jesus 2,000 years ago, we wouldn't have the church. It, that is a bizarre way of thinking, that as if God can be frustrated in his planet. He is in the heavens. He does as he pleases, as the psalmist says. This plan has never been frustrated. This plan has never been canceled. And even in the face of rejection, rebellion, sinfulness, and even in the face of, of our own shortcomings, brother and sister, when, you've, when, you, when you sin and you, and you fail and you fall short, even in the face of that, God's plan is not failing. God's plan is in motion. Because those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. His plan remains intact. No problem in this world or in the world to come can stop divine election. That's why Paul is so, so confident when he's writing to the Romans, and he says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can bring a charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ, who Jesus, who died, who has raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's why Paul can say, he who began the good work will finish it. He is faithful, and he will finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. Because our lives are safe in his hands. So you see, the doctrine of election, predestination, it is not a human invention. It wasn't invented by John Calvin 500 years ago. It wasn't invented by Augustine uh, 1,700 years ago as well. The doctrine of election is not human invention. It is God's own revelation to us. And far far from promoting a sense of superiority. If you're listening to this and you think, oh, wow, I'm special. If this is promoting a sense of superiority, you still haven't understood it. Because it means that you had nothing to do, that your life was carefully planned out from, from before the foundation of the world and you were saved by, by His grace Apart from your works, apart from your worthiness, apart from any merit of yourself. It promotes humility. Arthur W. Pink, he wrote that the truth of God's sovereignty removes every ground for human boasting and instills the spirit of humility in its stead. It declares that salvation is of the Lord. And all this is, the, is most humbling to the heart of man who wants to contribute something to the price of his redemption and do that which will afford ground for boasting and self-satisfaction. How can we boast? What will you boast about? It's all of grace from beginning to end. Even the faith you have was given to you by the Spirit. Upon regeneration. It is all a work of his sovereign, amazing grace. 
So all of our pride and all of our self-reliance should be laid low. Not by works of righteousness, says Titus 3.5, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the spirit. So that's the, the mechanism present there in eternity past. But then in verse 4, second part, we find what we are saved to. Chapter 1, verse 4, the second part, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. When God elected sinners, he elected them for something, for a purpose, for a meaning, for a life lived with a goal. And holiness and blamelessness, but holiness is the distinctive mark of the Christian. Holiness means to be set apart. Holiness means to be consecrated to something. And the life of the believer, of all Christians, of all those who are elect from before the foundation of the world, is holiness. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. And because we have, as Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, because we have been chosen to holiness, we must and we will become holy. We are not chosen to, to, to a mere possibility. Perhaps they will be holy. We are predestined, elect from before the foundation of the world for holiness. Now, of course, some of us will have degrees of this. Even in our lives, there will be times of, uh, uh, of, of going down. But the trajectory is clear. In those who are in Christ Jesus, the trajectory is, is upward, Godward, heavenward. God has chosen us for holiness. And if we don't go for it, it let me quote Lloyd-Jones here and, and explain what he means. But he says, God... Um, has, who has chosen, chosen you to holiness will make you holy. And if the preaching of the gospel does not do so, God has other means and methods. He may strike you down with illness. He may ruin your business. God will make you holy because he has chosen you unto holiness. In fact, we just sung about this. As we read that, that, that uh Sobering Psalm, Psalm 88, and as we sung uh, about the, uh, or as we sung the, the hymn inspired by this uh, uh, psalm, uh, we, we sung that the, these present ills and terrors shall future joy increase and scourge me from my errors to duty, hope, and peace. What does God use? If we don't attain to, to holiness by the ordinary means that he has given us through the preaching of, of, of God's word, through our obedience to him, he will scourge us. He will chastise us. He will discipline us. But that's because he is a father to us. And all that the father loves, he disciplines. He disciplines the one he, ones he loves, Hebrews 12. And he disciplines us for our good that we may share 
his holiness. Hebrews 12.10 For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. For he, for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. We're called to holiness, brothers and sisters. It's not a choice. He will make us holy. And in fact, isn't that the longing of your soul? Isn't that what you desire most, first and foremost? It should be. Because that's the meaning and the purpose of life. That's what we, you, you are here for, to be holy unto him. Holy, H-O-L-Y, and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, unto him. The wise Christian will always seek, or will long, not always, but will long to be more holy. He will long to be less worldly. He will long uh, yearn and, and cry out for holiness and for the world to be uh, taken away. Because we want to partake of his holiness. And the doctrine of election is the greatest comfort for us. It is the greatest comfort for me. How can I be holy knowing my own heart? How can I make myself holy knowing my heart? Well, God is working in me what is well-pleasing in his sight. He is the one who is able to keep me faultless. Or to keep me from stumbling and to present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He is the one who does this because he has elected me. He has elected you. I know that he is going to bless me with holiness. He has chosen me to this. Let me say this categorically before we move on to the, to the, to the next. Uh, before we leave the first verse, we just realize we, we still have two verses to consider. If you do not desire to be holy, I see no reason why you should call yourself a Christian. If you do not desire to be holy, you have no reason to presume, to have the presumptuous idea that you are a Christian. Only saints, only those who are holy just as the Father is holy will see heaven. In fact, heaven will be a, a, a massive, uh, boring place because heaven is a place of holiness. If you don't desire holiness, you don't desire heaven. That is clear from Scripture. You wouldn't be able to stand heaven. Heaven would be... Uh, Boring and 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 and, uh, and, uh, and contrary. Only those who are saints, saints and holy, is is exactly the same word. It's just translated different in English. Only those who are saints will have communion with God. There is no communion with God apart from holiness, from being saint, from being a saint, from being separated to Himself. But let me give you the comfort, the flip side of this. 
Perhaps you have asked yourself, as I uh, detailed a little bit, or as I briefly uh, expounded the doctrine of election, perhaps you ask yourself, how do I know if I'm elect? How can I know if God has chosen me before the foundation of the world? Well, one of the ways you can know is if you desire holiness. Because if you desire holiness, that is proof that you are one of the elect. Do you desire holiness? Are you pursuing holiness? Then you are saved. And this is not work salvation. Any more than uh, forgiven, uh, forgive and you will be forgiven. It's not work salvation. It's a heart that has been transformed, a heart that has been regenerated by the Spirit, a heart that has been born again of the Spirit, desires holiness. And if you desire holiness, that is proof that your heart is made new, that you no longer have a heart of stone, but you have a heart of flesh that desires and loves and wants to have a closer walk with the Lord. Let me just make a quick comment and we move on to the next, to the next verse the, about being blameless, about being without blame before him. The, the language here is language of sacrifice, a, 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 a lamb without spot or blemish. That's the language that is being referred to here. And what we see is that what God predestined us, what God called us to be, is to be this living sacrifice without blemish of any kind. It was used of the animal fit for sacrifice, but it is a word used here for us. Our lives are that uh, offering to God. Every part of our life, our work, our leisure, our family life, our personal relationships, our marriages, our, our work, in, uh, uh, everything is to be without blemish. As an offering to God. Later on, the, or the, we're not called to be in the, to to live lives in, in in filled with mud. We're called to live as lights in the world and to present ourselves to Jesus as pure as a pure, holy, and faultless bride. Later on in, in the book of Ephesians, we'll we'll get there. Eventually, uh, in chapter 5, verse 27, Paul uses the same wording to speak of us as a body of his people. He calls the church, the glorious church, uh, the bride of Christ. And he says that he might present her to himself, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Verse 5, how does God accomplish this? He predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. A lot to unpack here. He predestined us for himself. Brother and sister, you were made for himself. You were saved for him. You are not saved for the world. You were not saved for your own self or for, or for, or for the, the local uh, church. You were saved first and foremost for himself, to have a life with him, to have a life close to him, not away from him, but with him. Communion. You were chosen of God to walk with him for himself, to delight in him. For him to be the source of your pleasure, as the psalmist says, 
In your presence, O Lord, there is fullness. Not just partial joy, but fullness of joy. And he's done so by adopting us as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. What a wonderful statement. What a wonderful doctrine is the doctrine of adoption. You see, God didn't need to have children. We live in a world where uh, adoption is a, a second resource, a re recourse. It's a, a last recourse, let's say. After you've tried everything, after you went to all the, the doctors and, and after you've tried all the solutions available, you're, you're no longer able to, uh, you're no, not able to have a child, so you, you, you adopt. It's second best thing. But that's not the case with God. God already had a son, a perfect, obedient son. Our Lord Jesus, God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And yet, he adopt, uh, adopts us. In this world, people adopt and they try to choose the, the, the best fitting baby or, or child. Certainly, they don't go out of their way to choose the worst child, the worst looking, the ugliest. People will look for the, the whatever the parameters are, the the best fitting, most perfect child that fits the parameters that they've decided. With God, he chose us while we were his enemies, while we were children of wrath. He adopted us to be actually, truly, and, and really children of himself. It is a beautiful thing. But it also tells us something about the nature and love of God, that God has adopted us to be his children. It is a choice. Yes, his choice. He wasn't forced, coerced, or, or into this decision. Very much like adoption in our world. Adoption is, uh, is in many ways a proof of love because you, you are not forced into it. It is a conscious, deliberate, resolute act of love. You want to love, so you adopt a child. It is a voluntary choice. And we are made to be the children of God. Romans 8, 29 says that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. We are made his children in the image of his son. And who was Christ? He was holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, perfect in every way. And God has predestined us for that. What a joy! What, a, what grounds for assurance that he who began the good work will finish it. And another thing. In Roman law, when you adopted, you would become a part of that family, truly and really and, and factually, you would be a part of that family. But you wouldn't have the privileges of the firstborn. You would, would still be a, an adopted child. You had all the privilege of being in the family. You took the last name of your father and all of that. But there was still the firstborn somewhere, if there existed one. The firstborn was still the one who would take the inheritance. What does God say about the way he adopts us? He tells us that we are 
co-heirs with Christ Jesus. Not only that we've been adopted into a second kind, a class kind of adoption, but all the inheritance that belongs to the firstborn, to our Lord Christ Jesus, we are co-heirs with him. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are ours in Christ because we are co-heirs with Christ. So behold, as John says, behold the manner of love of the Father that, that the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons of God, that God has predestined us to adoption by Christ Jesus to himself. All the blessings needed for this enterprise of being transformed into the image and likeness uh, of of our Savior are going to be engaged and given all the power, all the love, all the all the uh, the wisdom needed to to fulfill and execute this plan are already ours and belong to us and are accessible by us. Why? Lastly, because His own glory is the motivating factor behind our salvation. Look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. We won't consider the second part. As I told you, this, this, this section that we are looking at is just one continuous sentence that goes from verse 3 to verse 14. Uh, this is one of those places where I believe that perhaps uh, the verse could have been divided somewhere else. The verse divisions are not inspired, by the way. So we will consider just the first part. To the praise of his glory, uh, of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. We'll look at better at, at the second part next week. What is the motivation for us to be Christians? It's the praise of his glory, of his glorious grace. It is, that, that's the motivation. That's why we are saved by grace in Christ. That he would receive the glory. That he would receive the honor and, and the power and the, and the exaltation and the praise and the adoration. What is God doing in our salvation? The, the answer is simple. He is storing up glory and praise for his holy name. Through saving sinners like you and me. Consequently, we won't go there today, but when people ask, well, uh, the, the, the age-old uh, criticism, the problem of evil, if, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? Consequently, part of the answer is here. It's not that God allowed uh, evil uh, just because. God allowed evil because there was a plan set in motion that he would receive the glory that God would receive all the glory. Ephesians 1.6 1, tells us how great is the matter of our salvation, how significant it is for God himself that we are saved. It is his glory. How typical it is for us, isn't it? When we think of our salvation, we think of ourselves. We think, we think in human terms, we think... Uh, uh, of our own experience, of our own emotional uh, needs. But we find in this passage that first and foremost, salvation, it's not about our needs, but it's about God's glory. And that's a wonderful, releasing thing. 
Because God is fully engaged in receiving glory. God is fully engaged in exalting his glorious grace. God has destined us to be a part of that. God has called us to be elements of that in our lives. So when, to go, to wrap around, I'll say a little bit more, but to wrap around to that, to the beginning, uh, why do we get out of bed in the morning? Because God has called us to this great calling of bringing glory to his name. What is the purpose of getting out of bed? I get to do this. I get to bring glory to his name by living the life he has called me to live. The reason the Lord shows us as a body of his people before the foundation of the world, the reason he preordained everything, the reason he laid it out, the reason he did it all is for himself. That he would receive all the glory, not just part of it, but that he would receive all of it, 100% of it. Brothers and sisters, we'll look at the end of this verse next week. But let me just draw a few closing applications. First of all, we've considered very much in the individual aspect of salvation. But let's bear in mind that the letter of Ephesians is written to a church. And it's written with a body in mind. In fact, that's the whole point of the letter of Ephesians. The first three chapters and the, the last three chapters are, are Paul giving, under the inspiration of the Spirit, instruction to the body. And the point why Paul is bringing this up here right at the beginning is to remind, to emphasize to the people that are read, hearing this letter read in their ears that they are a part of a body. That we all... If we are in Christ, we all come from the same uh, uh, fountain. We all flow from the same uh, salvation. We are all saved in the same manner. And that is tremendous because there is a unity there. A unity that we have with one another because we have this, the common salvation. The same spirit, one spirit, one baptism, Paul says. One faith. The message of the book of Ephesians is that we are the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the building that Christ is building. And that we have unity because of his salvation. Not because we have the same church tradition. Not because we have the same philosophy of, of ministry. Not because we have the same uh, shared uh, as so often is the case in churches here in London, uh, the same national language. We, we all uh, came into London from the same country, so we have the same language. So that's what... No! The one thing that unites us, first and foremost, is the commonness of our eternal life. The, not the, the, the eternal life is common, uh, as in uh, base, but the, the commonness that we have in, in common, the eternal life that we have in common with one another. We have the same blood flowing through our veins we are one in Christ we are all children of the same father 1 Corinthians six seventeen. as Paul writes to the church in Corinth he says he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him we are joined to the Lord and we are one spirit with him 
there is unity and there should be unity because we have the same Savior. We are saved in the same way. We are chosen and called to the same calling. There is no distinctions. Secondly, is that election, as I said, election is not man's teaching, it's God's uh, teaching, it's the Bible's teaching. It promotes humility, not pride, holiness, not license, and, and it promotes assurance, not presumption. Far from causing us to presume on our salvation, oh, I'm an elect. Election actually provo- promotes assurance. We are not saved because we go to church. We are not saved because I was baptized. I'm not saved because I prayed the prayer once. I'm not saved because I raised my hand in an in a, uh, in a evangelistic crusade and I walked down the aisle and I prayed the prayer and I signed the card. I'm not saved because I belong to this church. I'm not saved because I go twice a day, to, uh, twice a Sunday to the, to, to, the, to the services and I attend in the, in the midweeks. I'm not saved because I serve in this or that or the other ministry. You're not saved because of any of that. You're saved because God has chosen you in eternity past to be in the image of his son. Let that sink in. And realize that your salvation is safe and secure, therefore. And have joy in that salvation. You lack joy because you lack assurance. And you lack assurance because your, your salvation is, is, is grounded or the, your, your certainty of salvation is grounded on something that was never meant to be the ground of your salvation. Because when you realize that this salvation from eternity past is, is the salvation that God has given you, you will have assurance. You will have assurance because he has predestined it from before the foundation of the world. It is for his glory. And there's nothing that God is more protective about than his own glory. He will see to it that his glorious grace will be praised in the salvation of a sinner like you. That's the foundation of our assurance, what God has done, who God is, and what God has done. If he called me, he justified me by the blood of Christ. He will bring me to glory forever in heaven. But if you have never repented of your sin, and you never come to God through Jesus Christ, I appeal to you that you would come. Because that is the only way of salvation. If you do, you can know God's assurance of salvation. If you do, you can know that you you are in him because ultimately you are not the one seeking him. He was the one that sought you first from before the foundation of the world. Whenever I think of assurance, I think of my... I've, I've given this illustration, but let me just... I think of, of my young uh, middle son, Ishmael, and, uh, when he was afraid of a dog, and he, he, he jumped on my lap, and he, he, he clanged tight with, uh, with, with all his strength. And he thought he was safe because he was holding to me, but I, he was afraid of dogs, and he was a big dog. He wasn't a ferocious dog or anything. I know it's on the news nowadays about ferocious dogs, but he was clinging to me. 
But I was clinging to him. And in fact, it was my strength that was holding him up. He was so small, he wouldn't be able to hold himself up. I was the one holding him. And it's the same thing. When we realize what God is doing, we might cling to him when, when the sea billows roll, when, when, when the, the trials and the, and, the, and the afflictions of this life come. We cling on to him, but the reality is he is holding us fast in his hand with an iron fist, with a, with a strength that cannot be deterred or, or overpowered. It is God who holds on to us. And that's the ground of our assurance. And that's, the high, that's our destiny. That's what we've been called to do, to praise the glory of his grace. So when you feel like life is leading nowhere, when you get out of, uh, of bed in the morning and you think, what's the point? If you are his, you have a point. You have a meaning. You have a purpose to praise the glory of his grace. The ultimate goal of God's election is to bring glory to his name. It's the highest point, and that's what we've been called to do. The roots of your life were planted in eternity past, and the branches that are now coming are branches that are for the glory of his grace. Until the end of your life, it's for the glory of his grace. And that is the hope that we have. That is the, 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 the goal of our lives. There is the, the, that's the high achievement of our lives. In eternity, no one will care about, about how much you've done in this life, how high you have climbed in the corporate ladder, how, what, what tests uh, or scores you received on your GCSEs, A-levels, which university you went to. No one will care about this in eternity. You won't care about this. The point of eternity is for the praise of his glory. That's what is the most important thing. And God chose you before the foundation of the world that you might be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined you to sonship in Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory. So let us do that. Let us live for his glory and his glory alone.